Turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you would, this morning. We are continuing in the Beatitudes. We're on the seventh Beatitude, which will be Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. But we'll read all the Beatitudes, beginning in verse 1, reading all the way through verse 12 here in just a minute. We're in the Beatitudes because we've come to what is arguably the most famous passage of Scripture, of all the Scriptures, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And we're at the Sermon on the Mount because we are going through the life of Christ chronologically. And this just so happens to be where we're at. And we've slowed down. We've kind of been going through the life of Christ in chunks. And we, we hit the Beatitudes and it almost feels like we just slowed down. But if there's any passage of Scripture that, that deserves us slowing down, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And going through it nice and slowly, especially this introductory portion of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. So if you are there in Matthew, just stay there for a second while I do a little illustration this morning. And I need one volunteer to help me. Someone who... Has nice steady hands this morning. Come on up, Rowan. You always make it interesting. Come on. All right. I've got two paper clips, okay? You know how you can sometimes hook paper clips together like that? Here's what I want you to do I want you to hook those two paper clips together, but not using your hands and only using this piece of paper, all right? So go right ahead. I'm going to set them right there, and, and you do that. You think you can do it? Well, actually, okay, you can use your hands at the beginning there, but, but you can't hook them together with your hands. Okay, so you got both of them on the paper, and now what are you going to do? How are you going to get them hooked together? You don't know? You know you can do that? Here's this pretty cool little thing. Here, go ahead and stand up that, that I learned a long time ago. All right, watch this. I'm going to take this paper clip over here which is totally separate from this paper clip over here. I'm going to fold the paper in such a way I'm just going to put them both on the paper, but they're still separate, aren't they? This one's over here and this one's over here. Ready? I want you to watch something. Here we go. All right, pick it up. All right, now what are they? They're hooked together, aren't they? How cool is that? Now, I used to use this illustration... Years and years ago, when I very first taught on the Beatitudes with a bunch of children, and this was the illustration I used when I talked about us being a peacemaker, okay? Because the two paper clips here represent perhaps two people that are not at peace with one another. And part of our job as believers is that we help bring people together. We are peacemakers. But more importantly, maybe one of these paper clips represents a person, and the other paper clip represents God. And part of our job as Christians, as peacemakers, is to help people find peace with God. So this piece of paper here represents what we do. We help bring people together because we are to be peacemakers. So you can go ahead and have a seat this morning. And I do an illustration like that just so kids have something to grab onto. And maybe you'll remember the sermon because you remember that we made the, the paper clips pop together. But in a second here, I'll refer back to this paper. Um, so, so hang tight as we continue to talk about being a peacemaker this morning. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Please stand if you would now as we read this passage of Scripture, the Beatitudes, beginning in verse 1, which is the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as he speaks the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and that are all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we come and we look at this passage of Scripture, I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, enable our ears to hear, enable my mouth to speak. We pray that you would add your blessing to this reading of the word. We pray now that you would guide the preaching, or keep us from error, or guard us from error, as we talk about being peacemakers. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of of God. I'll remind you this morning that the Beatitudes are to be understood as traits or characteristics of kingdom citizens. From the very first verse here, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, we see that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Yes, there's a larger crowd that's listening in, but this sermon is aimed at Jesus' followers, his disciples. So this sermon is about what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. What it looks like to be a Christian. So this is, as I've said before, this is King Jesus speaking to kingdom citizens about kingdom living. Now we know it's all about kingdom living because both the first and the last beatitude, beatitude number one and eight, have the same promise attached to them, which sort of creates a verbal bracket that sums up all of the beatitudes. And it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So all the other promises that lie in between these brackets are promises that belong to kingdom citizens. And I'll remind you, and I know there's some here who are here for the first time and perhaps haven't heard the previous sermons, they do sort of build on each other. So I need to remind you that there's a pattern here. There's a couple of different patterns in the Beatitudes. One is this 3-1-3-1 pattern. The first three Beatitudes are about emptying ourselves of ourselves. That's poverty of spirit, mourning, and meekness. Then the next one is about filling up that emptiness with righteousness which is the character of God. We hunger and thirst to be like God, and thus we are satisfied, we are filled. The next three are about the overflow of that filling, the overflow of righteousness. What does the character of God or the goodness of God look like in us? It's mercy, it's purity of heart, and it's peacemaking. And then the final one is about the hatred the world has towards those who display the character of God. They're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Another pattern I pointed out last week is that the two halves of these Beatitudes correspond to one another. So that the first Beatitude and the first half, so if you divided them, one, two, three, four, and then five, six, seven, eight, the first Beatitude and the first half corresponds to the first Beatitude and the second half. So Beatitude number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, corresponds to Beatitude number five, blessed are the merciful. Only those who have seen their destitution before God and thus experience His mercy toward them can truly Show mercy toward others. Then the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, corresponds to the sixth beatitude, which is blessed are the pure in heart. 
Only those who have seen their sin and hate their sin and mourn over their sin through repentance have any desire to pursue holiness. If you haven't repented of your sin, you don't desire purity or holiness. Then there's the third beatitude, which corresponds to the one we are studying today. The seventh beatitude, blessed are the meek. And then there's blessed are the peacemakers. Only the meek. Only those who do not seek to justify themselves, but rest in the providence of God, only those can truly be peacemakers. And then finally, the last two correspond, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So these Beatitudes have a structure to them. Jesus is not just firing off random sayings. These are well thought out, and we do well to think about how they relate together and not take them as isolated statements. So that's why I review this. You're probably tired of the seventh beatitude. I'm tired of hearing Steve talk about these patterns. But I review it over and over again because I want to get it into our heads that these are structured together. They are tied together. And so we need to think about that. So today, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. This, This is part of this overflow of righteousness. It's the character of God in the believer. And like all the beatitudes, it's a supernatural work of God in the believer. And the man who is marked by this beatitude, as well as the other beatitudes, is indeed a happy or blessed man. Peacemakers. Now I want you to notice right off the bat here, this doesn't say blessed are the peaceful, or even blessed are the peacekeepers. But blessed are the peacemakers. This word is an active word. It's not a passive word. The idea is that kingdom citizens are people who pursue, who cultivate, who spread, who publish, who promote, and who are zealous for peace. And peace is not simply the absence of conflict. Peace here is the Hebrew concept of shalom, which I mentioned earlier. And shalom is the overall well-being, wholeness. It's to thrive and flourish in body and mind. And those who are in the kingdom of God, kingdom citizens, desire this. They pursue this. And the promotion and the pursuit of shalom does not come naturally to the natural person. Okay, Like I said, this is a supernatural work of God in the believer. Because men are born fighting in strife. From the womb, man is at war with God and his fellow man. Maybe you in here who don't have children don't realize that yet. Or maybe you only have one. Once you have two, you realize they are fighters. They are warriors. You know, I know they come out and we say, oh, what a, what a bundle of joy. They're actually a bundle of depravity. All right? They are born sinners. <laughs> a bundle of depravity. Can't wait to the next baby dedication at Harvins, right? <laughs> Here's Jeremy and Missy. They would like to introduce to you their bundle of depravity. Um, But that's how it is. Men are born in sin. Matter of fact, friends, if it were not for the restraining hand of God, a common grace bridle placed upon humanity, then men would have eradicated themselves long ago. But from the moment of the fall, man has been at war with God and with himself and with other men. And ever since then, man has been passing his days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, according to Titus 3.3. So no treaty, no pact, no coalition, no organization of nations 
will ever bring true peace to mankind. We've tried it over and over and over again. There was a, um, the Kellogg Pact. Does anyone know what the Kellogg Pact was? Okay, right after World War I, I believe, was this pact that people declared would get rid of war forever. Because all these nations got together and said, we're all agreeing, we're never going to fight. Great! And just a few years later, World War II began. It made World War I, the war to end all wars, look like nothing in comparison. No treaty, no pact, no coalition, no organization of nations, no Olympics, right? You have the Olympics right now. The Olympics are supposed to be this time of gathering together and having peaceful competition with one another. And what is everyone talking about? Terrorist threats. Because man is always at war with one another. Because man is always at war with his God. So let's be clear, this beatitude here this morning is not referring to people who in their natural disposition or in their personality are sort of tranquil or cordial or friendly. We all know people that are like that. They just, you know, they don't want to fight and they're just cordial and friendly. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a supernatural work of God. Because Jesus says, even if a man's hands have not been physically stained by blood, his heart has been. For all men have committed murder in their hearts. So peacemaking is not innate to the natural man, yet it is essential to the kingdom man. Therefore, like all the Beatitudes, it is a work of God done in our hearts. For only a new man who has been born again and brought into peace with God can be a peacemaker. It's interesting that this noun, peacemaker, this is the only place this noun appears in the entirety of Scripture. Peacemaker. But there is one place where it's found in verbal form. And it's this passage of Scripture that We've already read this morning, Colossians 1, 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the, that's the verbal form of this same word. So in, I know in our English, making peace is two words, but really in the Greek it's one word. Making peace. So then the ones who can be peacemakers are the ones with whom God has made peace. Peacemaking then is like a billboard-sized flashing neon sign that testifies to the fact that the blood of Christ has been applied to you. If you are a Christian and you have been born again and the blood of Christ has been applied to you and you've been made, peace has been made with God, then you should be a peacemaker. That should be a massive fruit showing that you are a Christian. It's interesting here, as Jesus continues to talk about this, and as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see that only the new creature, only the born-again man, can aspire to the things Jesus speaks of in this Sermon on the Mount. I mean, this is an ethic. It's way too high for the natural man. Only a new creature. Only someone who has been reconciled to the God of peace through the Prince of Peace will truly pursue peace. So with that, let me give you a definition of peacemaker this morning. A peacemaker is one who loves and works for peace and does so in the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through him as the fruit of the peace merited and applied by the blood of Christ. Now, I know that's kind of a long definition. But this peacemaking, to be honest with you, as I prepared this sermon, I had so much that I couldn't put in it. I mean, you could, we could talk about a whole lot 
when we're talking about peacemaking, and it's a massive, major theme throughout the whole Scripture, especially the New Testament. And so I know this is kind of a long definition, but I think that sort of sums it up. A peacemaker is one who loves and works for peace and does so in the power of the Holy Spirit, flowing through him as the fruit of the peace merited and applied by the blood of Christ. Peacemaking is one of the fruits by which the kingdom citizen is recognized as being a kingdom citizen. Jesus said you will recognize them by their fruit. But let's be honest. How many of us see peacemaking as essential? How many of us see peace and unity as a primary doctrine in the church? Let me ask it this way. Let's say I ask you to make a list of what sins you think were on the top of God's most hated list. What would they be? I'm not asking for you to speak out, but just think in your minds. What, what would they be? Well, you don't have to think hard because God gave us a list. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. It says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. That word abomination is, is big. He hates these things. Verse 17, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. What's the last one? And one who sows discord among brothers. This is massive. But let's not just hang there. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's let Paul give us a list, all right? Galatians 5, verse 19. Paul gives us a catalog of sins and warns us that those who continually practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So let's look at it. Let's see what sins he puts on that list. Okay, this is a list of sins for those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, so here's what he puts on it. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Now let's pause right there. I think we'd all agree. We'd put that on our list. Yeah. But then Paul goes on and he says this. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. I think when we hear that list, we're like, whoa, wait a second. Then he gets back to a couple more that we agree on. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But then Paul says this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think if we're honest, we probably don't struggle with the idea that someone who practices habitual, unrepentant sexual immorality or sorcery or even drunkenness, we don't struggle with the fact that one of them is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But how about the one who habitually and unrepentantly stirs up enmity, strife, dissension, division? You know who that person is. The person who's always causing trouble, always whispering and gossiping, is always fighting with someone over something, is always complaining, is always overly critical and judgmental. According to Paul, a person who unrepentantly continues to act like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. This peacemaking is no light matter. It is no light matter. You cannot read the New Testament without seeing this. 
You see Paul continually striving, fighting for peace. They may sound funny. Fighting for peace. He encourages Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord in Philippians 4. You see him employing the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.10 that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then he warned the Galatian church that, that their lack of peace would bring them their own destruction. Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So how important is it for a kingdom citizen to be a peacemaker? It is monumental. Matter of fact, the legitimacy of the gospel is at stake. For if we have been brought to peace with God by the Son, by the blood of the Son, then we will be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So I want us to think about peacemaking this morning. I want us to see three levels of peacemaking that mark kingdom citizens. And here's the first one. A peacemaker eagerly seeks for all men to be at peace with God. That's the first level here, is that a peacemaker eagerly seeks. He is zealous about this. He wants people, all men, to be at peace with God. His first priority in peacemaking is that he wants people to be at peace with their maker. Remember, just as we stated a minute ago, the peacemaker is a new creature. He is a born-again man. It's the only way he can be a peacemaker. He has been brought into peace with God, and he therefore now desires to see his fellow man have peace with God, which is exactly what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and following are all about. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, if it ended right there, that would be an amazing verse. But then he says this. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And this is how Paul finishes it. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. If you are serious about the gospel, then you are serious about peacemaking. The peacemaker seeks peace between man and God, so he works at his job, believing that he's been placed there by God to see men reconciled to their maker. He looks at his neighborhood, knowing that his lost neighbors are enemies of God and must be reconciled to God. He sees his role as a parent as that of a peacemaker to raise children who are born totally depraved, as we said a minute ago, and at enmity with God, but to raise them in such a way they might hear and see the gospel and be reconciled to God. We are to see our whole life as that of being peacemakers between man and God. And of course, we don't carry out that peacemaking with a haughty spirit but in a spirit of humility, knowing that we have been brought to peace with God, not based upon anything good that God saw in us, not because we were superior or there was anything special in us, but solely by his grace. How important is it for us to have a recognition of God's one-sided, monergistic, peacemaking work that he did to bring us to himself, 
a proper understanding of our salvation by God's grace alone and of our status prior to salvation as totally depraved enemies of God will drive us to be humble peacemakers. A proper understanding of the doctrine of total depravity and of unconditional election are key to being a humble peacemaker. Romans 5.10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So the Christian, because he has been reconciled to God, seeks for others to be reconciled to God. That's the marching orders of kingdom citizens. We are on a mission of peace. We are ambassadors of peace. The men and women of this world are not our enemies. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive to obey Christ. How? With the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and with feet fitted with the readiness given by the gospel of peace. According to Ephesians chapter 6. And those are beautiful feet. Feet that bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. You know, we live in a day and age when we're told that it's intolerant for us to share our faith. We're told that it's insensitive, disrespectful, and arrogant. Matter of fact, and this was years ago, I remember picking up a magazine article, a secular magazine, and I saw this headline on the front, and they were talking in there about um, uh, Christian missions, and it said something on the front of the magazine, Evangelical Missions, and I can't remember what the tagline was. And I opened it up and read it, and this author was totally against evangelical Christians sharing their faith with anybody, even here in the States. And he said to do so was an act of spiritual violence. Quite the contrary, friends. The most peace-thinking, peacemaking thing anyone can do is to share the gospel. The most peacemaking thing you or I can do in this world is to share the gospel. Unfortunately, they don't give out Nobel Prizes for that, do they? The Nobel Peace Prize goes to a thousand other things that haven't worked. But I doubt in 2014 they'll be announcing, and the Nobel Peace Prize goes to Kerry Rosbury for sharing the gospel with his co-workers who are at enmity with God. Or the, the Nobel Peace Prize goes to Peter Salas for preaching the gospel of peace on the street corners of Athens. That ain't going to happen. You're not going to get recognized as a peacemaker. You're going to be called by the world the opposite. A strife maker. A peace breaker. But Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And we know that a peacemaker is a person who's brought and brought to peace with God and therefore desires peace with his fellow man. For God to be at peace with his fellow man. So we need to ask ourselves, do we, do we seek to bring peace between men and God? In other words, do we evangelize? If not, why not? If we slack in our evangelism, could it be because we don't meditate enough upon that Romans 5.10 passage I just read a minute ago, that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son? Shouldn't a deep meditation upon that passage of scripture drive us to evangelism? And when we do evangelize, does our attitude and our tone and our evangelism reflect the reality that we are not at war with men, but instead we are ambassadors of peace? You see, I think we must do all in our power to be at peace with men while we urge them, urge them boldly to be reconciled to God. 
Obviously many that, that hear the gospel message and will hate us. But at least from our side of things, we strive to be peacemakers. I'm constantly reminded of this passage of Scripture. It comes up a lot in my discussions with people. And, but I'm reminded of the, the attitude and the tone that Paul was telling Timothy to have. 2 Timothy 2, 23. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So there's a, a peacemaking spirit about him. But what's his motivation? His motivation is that they would be at peace with God, because that passage goes on. It says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So Timothy was to have a peacemaking disposition in all that he does, seeking by all means possible not to be at strife with men. Why? So that other men might find peace with God through the gospel message. And this takes me to our next point. A peacemaker eagerly seeks for all men to be at peace with men. A peacemaker seeks ways for men to find peace with one another. But a peacemaker first and foremost seeks himself to be at peace with his fellow man. To all men in general but especially to his brothers and sisters in Christ. To all men, in the sense that a Christian should be known as a peaceable person. He is an ambassador of the God of peace, so he should, as Colossians 4, 5 says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. And he should, as we read in 1 Timothy 4, 11, aspire to live quietly and to mind his own affairs and to walk properly before outsiders. All God's people are to do as Paul instructs elders to do in 1 Timothy 3, 7, which is to be well thought of by outsiders. So that according to Hebrews 12, 14, we strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But even when we act peaceably toward those who are against us, when we act peaceably toward other men, people may not act peaceably back toward us. But we are to continue to have a spirit of peace as Jesus teaches in here just a little bit. Matthew chapter 5 verse 44. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. The blessed man is the man who is different from the world. In that he doesn't act like the world. He doesn't seek revenge. He is a peaceable man. But he's different from the world also because he's bringing a message of peace. Peace, first of all, between man and God. And only once we have that can we have peace between men. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Or as he puts it in Galatians 6.10, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially those who are in the household of faith. So we are to live peaceably with everyone, so far as it depends upon us, all men, but especially with the household of faith, especially we are to be at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because all former hostilities have been brought to an end for those who are in Christ. All former divisions, all former factions, they're gone. The Jews of Jesus' day, friends, they wanted a warmongering Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who would come in and destroy the Romans and then bring these Gentile dogs into submission. So they would have been shocked when Jesus makes a plea for his kingdom citizens to be peacemakers. And the idea that would come as the gospel came, that the Jews in Christ were to be one with the Gentiles, 
would have been downright scandalous for them to hear. I mean, friends, you may know this if you studied sort of some of the history of what the world was like when Jesus came. The hostility that was existing at that time between Jews and Gentiles was, was a lot worse than even the, the worst hostilities we can imagine in the 1960s in the middle of Mississippi between black and white. The hostilities were horrible. Yet we read in Ephesians 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's speaking to Gentiles here. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer strangers and aliens but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So unity, peace, it's huge in the church. It is the distinguishing mark of the church. People in their sinful natures by nature, separate. I found it interesting. Watched a, a little bit more this week of some of the, the, the American Idol tryouts thingy. And now they're all in Hollywood. And they had to break up into groups so they could sing in groups. And some of the groups were horrible and some of the groups were okay. But one thing I said as I looked at the groups, do you notice they all divided along racial lines? So the black groups are together. And then there's the Hispanic groups and the white groups. And men naturally want to have nothing to do with others with whom we feel uncomfortable. Someone has said that our prisons in the United States are the most segregated areas in the country. Because when you go into prison, if you don't identify with your people, you're dead. So you join the Hispanic gang, you join the black gang, you join whatever gang for whatever race that you belong to. That's men in their natural state. But the supernatural man, the kingdom man, should be united by the gospel with his brothers and sisters in Christ regardless of their race, ethnicity. And so we should see in the church, and unfortunately we don't see it like we should, a great unity and a great diversity in the body. Peace between the diverse peoples in the church speaks to the validity of the gospel. When we lack peace and unity in the church, we are committing violence against the gospel. Is that not why our Lord prayed so earnestly his high priestly prayer in John 17, 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Disunity in the church becomes a scandal to the gospel. Friends, we must seek, we must pursue, we must be zealous for peace and unity in the body of Christ. So Paul emphatically says in Colossians 3, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And then he says in Ephesians 4, something very similar. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility 
and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Kingdom citizens are to be walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling to which we've been called, And therefore, as verse 3 in Ephesians 4 says, we are to be eager. And that word means zealous to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is to be our driving ambition. We want to see unity. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, yeah, yeah, okay, I agree with that. And I know I may need to grow in some areas. But, you know, really this peace isn't up to me. You're missing the point. All peacemakers begin with themselves. A peacemaker begins by first emptying himself of himself. That's the first three Beatitudes. Self, friends, is the enemy of peace. The world says put self first, but self is the great ally of sin and the great enemy of righteousness. So the peacemaker quiets himself, humbles himself, controls himself, forgets himself, empties himself so that he does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counts others as more significant than himself. He looks not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And and if possible, so far as it depends on him, he lives at peace with all. The peacemaker knows that he has logs to deal with in his own eye before he's able to see sufficiently to help a brother remove the speck in his eye. But friends, let me be very, very clear this morning. A peacemaker is not an appeaser. Some of you sitting here are saying, okay, Pastor Steve, are you saying that we're to pursue peace in the church at any price? Of course not. There is a type of peace that we are tempted to seek that in reality is no peace at all. It's a peace that comes at the expense of the truth. That peace is only a mirage. So someone's out in the desert and they're crawling along and they see this, this palm tree and this, this beautiful lake of water and they go up to it and they go to grab it and then when they grab it all they have is sand. That's the type of peace that seeks peace at any price regardless of the truth. It's a mirage. It's not true peace. The peace we are to truly seek is the peace that accords with truth. Look at the context here of the Beatitudes. What precedes peacemaking? Purity. Purity precedes peacemaking. And peacemaking that flows out of purity will often lead to conflict in the form of persecution. Just follow the Beatitudes. Purity, peacemaking, persecution. So it's not the absence of conflict that we're talking about here. We're talking about a peace that is pure. James 3.17 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Purity, then peace. Purity takes precedence over peace. So there are times when the true peacemaker will come into conflict for the sake of purity And for the sake of true peace in the body. Paul dealt with this, 1 Corinthians 11. We just read earlier in 1 Corinthians 1 that Paul urges them earnestly to seek peace. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians 11, 18. For in the first place when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. And then he says this, which seems strange to us. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. 1 John 2, 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. We are to protect the peace of the church by disciplining those who are in unrepentant sin. Paul says, purge the evil person from among you. Purge means to do what? To remove impurities. To make the church pure. The peacemaker seeks purity. And the peacemaker seeks a peace that flows out of purity. Therefore, a peacemaker must himself be pure. He must be humble and meek. A man who has emptied himself of himself, as these Beatitudes teach us to do, through confession of sin and repentance, only the broken believer is the one who is in position to discern the difference between good factions that result in the breaking away from false teaching that should not remain in the church, and bad factions that result from the breaking down of unity that should not remain in the church. So peacemakers watch out for false doctrine while at the same time working hard for unity. And that is a hard combination to find. It is really hard. And that's why this is a supernatural work. We fall into lots of problems when we try to figure this out on our own. Romans 16, 7, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The wise man will not divide or quarrel over foolish and ignorant controversies. He will not elevate issues of Christian freedom to first-level doctrines. He knows that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And that's Romans 14, verse 17 and following. Mutual upbuilding. And this leads me to my last point. And the last point is really quick. A peacemaker eagerly seeks for all men to be at peace within. The church is to be the place where men and women counsel each other with the gospel and seek to bring each other to a place of peace within. The church is to be the place where we do counseling, friends. I am more and more convinced of that. Just a few years ago, I was one of these who had thought that counseling should be farmed out. God brought me to see that no, counseling needs to happen in the church. If we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, then counseling should happen in the church. The church is to be a place where we find tranquility during the storms of life, like an ocean. There can be this massive storm on the top of an ocean, but you go deep down in the water and go down to the sand, and the sand's not even moving. And everything down there is as still as can be. That is to be what the church does is to help people find peace and tranquility in the midst of a massive storm. The peacemaker helps his brother to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, to let his request be made known to God so that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard his heart and his mind. The peacemaker reminds his brother of Jesus' words, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
neither let them be afraid. In this verse, which was my life verse when I was in high school, John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We encourage each other with these words. Jesus said, I have said these things to you. Meaning that the peacemaker takes the words of Christ seriously. He takes the word of God seriously. In Colossians chapter 3, after Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. He then says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts toward God. How do we cultivate peace in the church? We let the word of God just dwell in this place richly. How does man find peace within? Well, when peace is flourishing in the church, the word of God should be preached. The words of Christ should dwell richly in our midst. So I want to refer back to our illustration that we did at the very beginning here. Really, this isn't about us. You see, peace, friends, is a person. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's not trying to draw attention to us. He's drawing attention to himself. He is the one who brings us into peace with God. And it is by his words, by his gospel message, that he gives us and equips us to be peacemakers in the world and to be peacemakers in the church. If you're a believer here today, you are called to promote peace between God and man. You are called to promote peace between man and man. And you are called to be at peace with your fellow man. And you are called to promote peace within the hearts of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is not optional. If there's any unbelievers here this morning, friends, Jesus alone will be your peace. You see, in the garden named Eden, peace was lost. And man was subsequently at war with God and war with his fellow man and even at war within himself. But on a hill named Calvary, peace was won. And man can now subsequently be at peace with God, at peace with his fellow man, and even at peace within himself. And friend, for those who have found peace with God through the blood of Christ, they imperfectly strive and fight for more and more peace. But they know that there is a great promise for one day... They will be with God forever and will be forever at peace. They will not just be at peace with God like an enemy who's been granted clemency. No, they will be, according to this passage of Scripture, called sons of God. They will be sitting at the king's table as sons. This calling where it says we are called sons of God, this is God calling us sons. He is calling peacemakers his sons. God is saying he owns them as sons. We are his and he is ours. They are sons as the evidence of their sonship that they resemble their father. The God of peace. We are sons because we look like our father. They resemble their father because they've been united by faith to their elder brother, Jesus, who is the prince of peace. So I leave you with these words this morning. If you are an unbeliever here, come and fall on your knees before a holy God. You are at war with that God, and you will never find peace. You may be here thinking that presence in a church building around church people will bring you peace. You may be thinking that if you can just get a thousand more bucks into your bank account, you'll be at peace. 
You may be thinking if your wife can just stop being who she is, you'll be at peace. You may be thinking whatever it is you're trying to do to find peace, you will never find peace apart from Jesus Christ because you are at war with God. The only way you find peace is to be made a son of God, to be united by faith to the one who shed his blood so that you might be at peace with his father. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Shalom. Peace be with you, brothers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise and thank you that um, there are many perhaps most, maybe even all, in this room here this morning who have been brought to a place of peace with you. And there are many here in this room this morning who can testify to the fact that they had tried a lot of other things to find peace in their heart, peace in their soul. But it wasn't until you grabbed them when you did your work while they were still enemies you brought them by the power of your Holy Spirit making their heart new so that they would be at peace with you through the blood of your son I praise and thank you Lord that you have done that here in this room for many and Lord I confess that my heart doesn't ache enough for those in this room who have not had that happen. My heart does not ache enough for my neighbors. My heart does not ache enough for the people in my community. And that is terrible. Because if I have truly been brought to a point of peace with you, Father, I should desire to let them hear the peace, the news of peace, the good news of peace, the gospel of peace. So God, I pray that you would motivate us, stir us up to be peacemakers. And Father, if we're here this morning, we're believers, and we have something against a brother or a sister in this body, Lord, I pray that we would take seriously what the scriptures say about peacemaking. This is not a light matter. And the whole body is affected. The whole body is hurt when we don't seek peace with our fellow man. If there be anybody in here, Lord, this morning who is struggling, Lord, maybe life just isn't going the way they had hoped or expected. Maybe they're depressed. Maybe they're anxious. Lord, I pray that your word this morning would be like a soothing balm to their soul and they would find peace within. And I pray that this body of believers would edify one another so that we might seek peace in each other's lives. Father, I ask these things. I know that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing. So we ask, Lord, that you stir up a spirit of peace in Harbin's and beyond. Help us to be peacemakers as we leave this place here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.